Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a Super Bloom podcast. Hello, it's me, your host, Candace King. Well, if you've listened to this podcast, you know that um, back in a different life, back in the olden days, a long, long time ago, uh, I would sing. I would open my mouth and sing musical notes, uh, try to keep them on pitch as much as possible. Uh, yeah, I was a singer. That's how I, I moved to L.A. I was going to be an international pop star. That was my big dream. And I I was 16. I was whew, I was very young when I moved out there. And uh, and I actually I wasn't that bad. You know, I had, a, I had a pretty good run in my musical career. I got signed to a record label. I was writing with a lot of incredible writers and artists at the time. And and though that's not the direction my life continued, I I really do look back um, with a lot of feelings about that time in my life. And and one of the things I remember was just also how in awe I was of of all the other young girls who were just going after it, who were like buzzed about, like everyone would talk about them. Because once you kind of get through the golden gates of a music label, at least back then, especially, this would have been in the early aughts. So um, once you would get through the the golden gates into a record label, you suddenly then 
kind of then got this like idea of like who your competition was. And because there wasn't, it's not like they were like, yay, you get a record deal. Everyone gets to just go and like live their musical dreams. Then you had to like really hustle and work and, and kind of like fight for the right songs and to be, to get attention from the people that you were working with so that they would actually want to support your career. And it was this whole other game. And one person that I really remember from that time, because I thought she, I'm like, oh my gosh, she just has it all. She's so cool. She had this like fiery like orange red hair her music was so good like I remember her billboards around LA and her name was Bonnie McKee and I was on I was on the TikTok as you youths love to be on and and this wasn't too long ago I, I did a very long jump cut from the early aughts to present day and and lo and behold who popped up on my like for you TikTok thing but it was Bonnie McKee and I was like oh my gosh it's her after all these years like I hadn't thought of her and then I saw her and I was and I went to this whole deep dive on her career and her incredible career as a songwriter and her career as an artist and everything that she'd been through and I was like I I feel like I finally have the guts to like actually be like hi Bonnie McKee uh, and and that's what this episode is about. I finally, after all these years of being like, wow, she's like this golden child of the music industry from when I was like walking around LA. And I was really, really honored and humbled to be able to sit down with her today. And if you're like, Candace, who's Bonnie McKee? Well, first of all, listen to this episode and then you can go listen to all of her wonderful music on Spotify. But Bonnie McKee, she's an American singer-songwriter. She's also a director and an actress. She has co-written 10 number one songs and is particularly, you might know her from collaborating with Katy Perry. Um, She co-wrote so many of her hits, uh, including like California Girls, Teenage Dream, Last Friday Night, Roar. Um, she's also co-written songs for pop stars like Britney Spears and Kelly Clarkson and Jason Derulo. Okay, that's not my best singing, but like I feel like I can't say his name. You always have to do that little like Jason Derulo. Like that's just it. I can't just say his name. Um, oh, also Bonnie McKee is co-written for Christina Aguilera, and her music videos are to die for they are so cool um but you might know her song slay hot city and don't get mad get famous it's all part of her forthcoming album hot city which is a collection of her sparkly fantastic anthems written in the golden era of pop music back from the 2010s yeah she went back in her archive and is like you know what i'm gonna do bonnie's version and we're gonna talk about that today as well. I'm just so thrilled for this conversation. And if you listen to this episode and you're like, oh my gosh, I love Bonnie McKee now and I need to know everything about her, um, check out at Bonnie McKee. She is on social media platforms. She's on Instagram. You can go see her on TikTok. Um, Go watch her music videos is all I can say. They are just, they're so fun. They're so fantastic. She's so fantastic. So without further ado, here's my long overdue conversation with the Bonnie McKee. Really excited to be talking with you. I don't, like, I I was trying to think if we'd ever crossed paths because I lived in LA and was in the music industry in the same years that, like, you were coming up in the music industry. Mm -hmm. And so I've known your name for a very long time, like, (laughs) publicly and, like, you know, in writers' rooms and hearing of you for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, watching you 
like not only share your story uh, on social media in such a really beautiful, vulnerable way, but also kind of like reclaim your name has just been such a joy. Thank you. Like after all these years of like knowing who you were. And I like have this very vivid memory of driving around LA and like knowing like, like I, even with your, your record where it was like the blue cover and you have Mm -hmm. your like like signature orange red hair and like your bright red hair and you were like blowing a bubble and the light bulb is right above you and I just was like she has it all figured out like she right oh my gosh especially then I definitely did not (laughs) (laughs) but it's so we actually have a very similar very different trajectories but similar points on the map in which we were in similar so I too moved to LA when I was 16 and Mm -hmm. and you did as well. You're from Seattle though, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. I moved down to LA by myself at 16, almost 17, got a record deal and just kind of made it work, sort of thrown to the wolves a little bit. (laughs) And when you were in Seattle, which obviously like ties into, I think, you know, what became like so beautiful, beautifully magic about you throughout your career was that like you not only were singing and you were playing piano, but you were, you started songwriting at a very young age. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I actually, when I was a kid, I wrote poetry. I was really into poetry and I would like go to poetry slams, which is kind of embarrassing, but I would go and read my poetry and talent shows and stuff. Like I love to write and I love to sing. And it wasn't until I was like 12 years old or something that I realized that there was such a thing as like a songwriter that that was something that I could do. And I always wanted to be a singer. And I remember my mom was friends with this guy, Jonathan Poneman, who like signed Nirvana back in the day. It was like the only music industry person in Seattle at the time. I gave him a demo tape of a bunch of my just like cover songs. Like I covered like Jewel and Carol King and Fiona Apple. And he was like, oh, that's great. You can sing, but can you write? And I was like, huh. I took that as a challenge and I went home and I started writing songs. And of course, the first ones I wrote were absolutely terrible. But once I realized that was that could be an outlet for me, especially being an adolescent, really going through a lot and having some trouble at home and stuff like it became an escape for me and and an obsession. And I've been writing songs ever since. (laughs) It is interesting, like this generation of adolescents, like they have the Internet for their feelings, whereas Mm -hmm. like our generation had like diaries and like, mm-hmm. you know, journaling. And like I had like that, that's where I would put all of my emotional, like my big feelings is what yeah. I call them mm-hmm. to my children. Like your big feelings that you don't really know what they are, but I'd put them into like journals and writing things down and listening to music and, and just and making things and collaging and like things that like don't really matter in the bigger sphere of art, but like that it was an outlet for me. And I feel like it's interesting I like can't imagine not having that at that point in life when like you're just rushed. Well, you like, know, it's funny you feelings. say collaging. Like that's that like brings back so many <laughs> memories. Like I was big into collaging too. Like back when magazines were like so mm-hmm. important. Like I would go through the Nylon magazine and the Rolling Stone and the whatever, and I would rip out pages and put them on my wall and like and glue things to paper. Like cover one of my journals and, and like a little hodgepodge of inspirational pictures and. That's kind of like, I guess, what kids do with the internet now, you know, where it's like people collect memes and kind of make their own little videos. I don't know. I have gotten into TikTok in recent years and I was very reluctant to it at first where I felt like it was like 
that I'm too old for this or like, I don't want to dance around in my living room or whatever it is. But I realized like, I, I'm a director as well. And I direct all my music videos and all that. And I love directing and video as an art form. And I find it really cathartic and fun. And that's kind of like why I got into making music too, was because I was really inspired by watching the music videos of Madonna and Michael Jackson and Prince. I grew up on MTV. So it's kind of fun to be in the TikTok world and use video as, you know, an outlet for art. Yeah. So you moved to LA when you were 16. Did you have the record deal before you moved there? Did you move there and then you kind of started getting pitched around to or introduced to labels? Well, I made a demo of original songs when I was still in Seattle for a school project. I had actually gotten kicked out of school. I got kicked out of high school in ninth grade. From what? But my parents had already paid for this, like an intensive week where like some kids would go and like you know, plant trees in the park or like whatever interests you might have. And mine was music. And so we had already prepaid for this like music studio session. And so I was like, well, I may be kicked out, but I paid for that studio and I'm going to go. And so I went and recorded the demo of original songs, like like some of the first songs I ever wrote. And I had a CD burner (laughs) because it was, you know, the late 90s. And so I could burn like five CDs at a time. And I was like, I'm basically like a record label. And then I gave it to everyone I knew. (laughs) You're like, this is exactly how it works. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I gave it to everyone I knew. and, And someone at my school babysat for someone who knew someone in L.A. And this guy wanted to manage me. And he came up and met my parents and everything and then brought me down to L.A. and introduced me to an attorney. And he got it played. He got my demo played on Mornings Eclectic, which is a a radio show on NPR. And then there was a bidding war, just like kind of out of nowhere. So it really was like an old fashioned, like plucked from obscurity, didn't have any family in the biz, didn't know anything about the music industry. I didn't know the difference between a producer and a mixer. And, you know, I didn't know that was a thing. And so I really kind of had to learn on my own. And were you, did either of your parents or did you have anyone in your family move down at that point? Or are you just 16? Were you living on your own? Did you live with another artist or someone from the label set you up with someone? No, I was in Los Angeles living by myself in an apartment in West Hollywood. It was intense. Like all of my peers, which I didn't have any friends my age in LA at all. And all of my peers back in Seattle were still in high school. And so I had just like a long days of just like sitting around going like, what am I supposed to do with myself? Like, is this what grown up life is, you know? And so I wrote, you know, I just, I kept honing my craft. I spent a lot of time in the studio, but then there was a lot of time not in the studio because like, I didn't really understand that like when you get a record deal, it's like, you just think it's going to go a certain way and it doesn't, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I was in Orlando, Florida and made a demo and yeah, it was my dad like, gave it to someone on the golf course that knew someone that knew someone that knew someone that yeah. then took it off someone else's desk because they weren't interested. Mm-hmm. But I was 16 when I moved to LA and my mom came with me. But and then I it all happened very quickly of like getting signed and then getting a publishing deal and then being like, oh, I've made it. This is it. And then <laughs> having it turn very differently. Where I was like, well, now what do I do? And, you know, and just like this bizarre, weird thing where like I look back on, I've, I've been reckoning, like I've been having a lot of, I think about that time a lot now because I look back and realize just how young I was. Yeah. Like, have you seen a 16 year old lately? It's like, a, they're babies. I know. Like, they're chill. They're, little, they're little actual babies. babies. I'm like, what the hell? And not only that, but then realize the difference of like, that I was a woman, I was a young girl constantly in rooms 
with older men. Oh, yeah. Constantly. Mm-hmm. Constantly. And, and I look back at all these writing sessions and maybe there'd be a woman, but like every once in a while. But a majority of the time it was sitting down and explaining my young female teenage feelings to older men. Uh-huh. Like, did you... So, and, and something that like... What, and now the record industry is completely different. But at this point, it was still a machine. Like you yeah. get signed, you're you're putting together a record. If you if you are a writer, you would go into different things like writing sessions, which mm-hmm. still happen today. And but where you would go in, you'd sit down with, with like complete strangers and see if you could all write a song together until you kind of find the grouping of strangers that make like something magical, and then you usually move on and continue working with them to make a record. Mm-hmm. But for you, you were writing independently. But did you do the rounds? where you were like writing with like the matrix no, and the, you know, like it, and all the people i wish i wish god i would have loved to write with the matrix are you kidding i honestly it still was just so naive about like all of the different jobs in the music industry and all of the different tools available to me because i wrote all of the songs myself on the first album it was like the album was written when when they signed me i didn't want to co-write i didn't understand even what that was and so I was just kind of, they, they put me in with Rob Caballo, who produced Green Day and Michelle Branch and all these people, amazing producer. And now like looking back, I'm like, how, why would they not put me in with other writers, you know? But they had this idea that I was like this precious little prodigy or something. And that it was just like, I write everything myself. And that was like very important. And I guess it was important to me too, because I was like, why would I need to write with someone else? This song's already written. But I really wish that I had started earlier co-writing. Because, you know, I see some of these other artists like, you know, the Olivia Rodriguez of the world or whatever, where it's like they're writing incredible songs because, I mean, they're they're putting her. Well, first of all, shout out to Olivia Rodrigo, because when I, I was like, oh, I'm sure that this is like all of the best people are on this, blah, blah, blah. And it's just her and one other person that wrote the whole first album. And I was like, that is really impressive. And yeah. it means that she can really write, you know, like she like you said, you find the people that you work well with and you kind of stick with it. And I'm like there's soulmates in a way like there's like musical soulmates, you know what I mean, where there's no other relationship in which they would work. You know, it's not like a marriage. It's not a friendship. It's not even a business relationship. It's this weird songwriting soulmate. Yes. Yes. I, and when you find those people like hold hold dear because they're mm-hmm. hard to find. They're rare. But yeah, so I didn't really do the rounds as far as write like songwriting with other people. So I didn't learn how to co-write until after I had been dropped or I guess right before they put me in with a they had I went from like being the darling of the CEO at Warner Brothers to working with like a junior A&R. And I was like so annoyed. And I was like, you know, because I was used to being like the little princess in the building. And I was like, how dare you put me in with this like junior A&R that just started and he actually introduced me to a bunch of people that I still am friends with, producers and writers, and I started collaborating. And that was really my first experience with that. And I met a producer named Oliver Goldstein, who was one half of Oliver, which is an electronic group, but didn't exist yet. But it was, I, I had found my like musical soulmate. Like I was like, oh my God, like you hear what I hear. And like, we, you know, we're just like, so in sync. And we ended up dating for eight years, actually. (laughs) But we came up together in the industry. And we both signed to a small boutique publishing company at the time called Pulse Recording. We were like client number one and client number two. And now it's like a big, crazy publishing company. But yeah, he, he taught me a lot about like how to collaborate and it's really kind of an ego death because when you're used to doing everything yourself, then when someone comes in the room and like has a better idea than you, it's like, how dare you? Or someone's like, I think it could be better. It's like, like, it's terrible. (laughs) It's like really terrible. And I run into that with young writers now where it's like, I'll go in with an artist and they're just like, 
really resistant to me, like having any feedback. So I try to be gentle because I remember what that felt like. But like, once I opened up to collaboration, it was just like a whole new world. It was so beautiful because it's like, if someone has a great idea and it's better than mine, then I get to put my name on it. I get to be a part of that and we get to collaborate, you know, I get to like build off of that. But it definitely is difficult, I think, for young artists and writers to get used to collaborating. (laughs) Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Before you entered into, you know, this a completely new chapter of your career, in specifically in collaborating, you mentioned getting dropped from your label. And I, I remember... Like I, I, I was 18 when I got dropped and I just remember thinking, what do I do when the biggest goal I'd ever set for myself, I accomplished it and then it, and it's over, it's over before it began. Now what? And I, and I'd spent so much time either in the studio, in writer's rooms, like this was my entire identity and then kind of being constantly put on hold and not allowed to like no, we don't want you to perform here yet. No, we're not going to put this out yet. No, you actually need to go, you need to go be at events. You need to be on the arms of men and get yourself in magazines. You need to go do this. You need to go do that. But until you do all this, we're not going to put you out. And so I would try and try and try doing all these things that didn't contribute to anything having to do with music. And then Mm -hmm. still at the end of it was just completely dropped. And also within that are the politics of like, Hollywood and partying and all of and I just remember feeling like a washed up 18 year old and I was like how did this happen so quickly 
God, I know. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, I remember like crying on my 18th birthday because I was like, I'm no longer a Lolita. I'm no longer, I can't be like Britney Spears. I can't be, you know, it was like I had expired. And it was very different then where it was like, you really had to be like a teenager for anybody to give a shit, you know? And I'm grateful that that's changed. But yeah, I remember feeling washed up too. And also you described it perfectly of like coming out here and being like, okay, I did it. Like I got a record deal and I (laughs) did it. And now I'm, I've made it. And like, that is just the first step of so many and just like blind luck too, of things lining up, all the stars aligning. So yeah, that was like really devastating. When I got dropped, I was like, I mean, I was miserable there. They were holding me hostage for like six years. And so I didn't get dropped. Maybe I got dropped when I was like 19 or 20, actually. So yeah, like four or five years. I was like, what now? And what is the point? And because also I didn't understand that it's kind of a rite of passage to get dropped. Yeah. Like, you know, Lady Gaga, Bruno Mars, Pink, like all of these huge artists, Katy Perry. Katy Perry got dropped so many. I just remember how many times was it like three or four, four times? I mean, I remember we're just running around in all those circles like that. We had to have ended up at like some party or event (laughs) or one of the things or in some, you know, room across from each other. But but everyone got dropped. But it just but it hurts so bad. I I took to it very differently than I, than I now look back and see how other people took to it. Yeah. I was really like, my life is over and I Mm -hmm. literally wanted to die. Like I was like, and I just drank myself into oblivion. I just like went hard into like alcoholic and drugs and the whole thing. Um, I already had been struggling with that as a teenager. So I had already had this whole sordid past living in Seattle. And so when I got the record deal, I was like, finally it's all over and now my life is going to be great and then it's like when I lost this dream that had kind of been my north star my whole life where I was like if I could just get a record deal and be a star then everything's going to be fine and then like when that went away overnight I was like what's the point in living like I no longer have anything guiding me and so and you know what I'm so grateful for that because I think that if everything had just worked out how I had dreamed it would that I would not have, I needed to be humbled and I needed to fall on my face to grow. <laughs> and, you know, there, there are a lot of artists that I've worked with that, that it all worked out the first time around when they were really young. And I feel like whatever age you become famous and successful is the age you stop progressing. And I see that in some artists where I'm just like, huh, yeah, you never really made it past 15, did you? Um, because yeah. it's like, you don't have to, everyone's going to do shit for you. Like you don't have to learn how to do laundry. You don't have to learn how to balance a checkbook. You don't have to really learn anything because someone's always going to be there to do it for you. Or learn how to look at the, at the world through someone else's experience. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Because like the whole world revolves around you because that's what it's like when you're a teenager. And so it was really important for me to follow my face. (laughs) You know, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Now I read in one of your interviews I, I think there's also a misconception of like you sign a record deal and then you're just set for life and you just make it like and especially at that point they were I mean the record deal the publishing and record deals that they were still handing out at that point were like impressive <laughs> like financially yes. they were very hefty checks but that was all you had to live off of while you know 
doing all of these other things. And, and you know, it's just, especially if all the money's kind of going out and nothing's coming in. So I think that that's also something people forget is like you, you might get a signing bonus and a signing deal, but it is not like any sort of life, you know, long-term changing contract. And uh-huh. when you're young and you don't know how to manage money, I mean, it, it's really, I think it's just like such a, important part of your story that like you you came to LA you had like such this like everything you could have ever wanted and then and then had to basically start over anew and kind of rebuild from scratch like mm-hmm. could you share a little bit of it, about that period of time where you know you kind of were realizing like is this is this it now what do I do yeah yeah i mean i i was determined to do something i you know i didn't finish high school I didn't, I had never had a normal job other than working at Baskin Robbins when I was 14, which I was also fired from, by the way. And I was, I was like, what am I going to do? Actually, it's funny. I went to, my mom is really into Vedic astrology. And so she had this Vedic astrologist that she had been seeing since I was born, basically. And he had like read my chart many times, like read your star chart and whatever. And she's like, why don't you talk to Chakrapani? And so I had a meeting with him and he was like, yeah, you need to just put pen to paper, pen to paper, pen to paper. And I was like, what does that mean? And he was like, right, you have to write. And I was like, okay, but like, when is it going to all happen? And he was like, not till 2010 or something. I was like, what? Because that was like four years away. (laughs) I was like, fuck this. Like, no way. I'm, this guy is out of his mind. But like, well, like, we're going gonna... to flying cars by then. <laughs> yeah, <I'm totally>. talking <laughs> <about>. <laughs> totally. And so I was like, OK, well, whatever. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. But so I, I had met Ollie Oliver, this producer, and I was just in the studio and just like kept writing and got my first cut ever with Elliot Yamin, who was an American Idol runner up. And I got like a bonus track on like the Japanese version of the and I was like, <laughs> wow, I did it. Like I did something. And I remember like going home for Thanksgiving and my family being like, what are you doing with your, like, what, what does that mean? I was like, you don't understand. Like I got a cut, like that's so hard to do. And so, and then I was like, okay, well, this is a challenge. I'm going to try to do that. And I was like singing demos for money and whatever. But like, I always in the back of my mind was like, I'm an artist and I just want to get there again. But you know, the more I was in the rooms writing with people, the more word got out that I was good at what I did. And I was actually, I met Katy Perry just completely randomly, just (laughs) all the stars aligned at Wasteland, which is a thrift store in LA on Melrose. And we were both selling our clothes because we were both broke artists that had just been dropped. And we were kindred spirits. We became friends. She actually came up to me and was like, oh, you're Bonnie McKee. Like she, you know, back then my name was like buzzing around LA. Yes, you were very, yes, yes. Even though like it (laughs) never went anywhere or whatever. But like if you were in the scene, then, then she knew my name and she knew the album and she was quoting lyrics and stuff. And I was like, wow, like another person that's my age that does what I do. And so we were fast friends and we had very similar tastes and like aesthetics. And so she went on to do one of the boys and blew up and we were still friends or whatever. And then on the second album, she and Dr. Luke called me in to write on the second album. And I was like scared because I, well, Luke signed me because I had been getting like little cuts here and there, whatever. And because Katie had told him that, you know, who I was and whatever. And so was he Dr. was like, Luke a manager of like a, his own kind of like writing. He has a co- publishing company. Yeah. So it's a publishing company. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. 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 Yeah. Okay. And so he ended up signing me as an artist and as a writer. And it was like, okay, so we're going to work on Katie's stuff. 
and then we'll get to your stuff. And I was like, okay, great. And so I worked on the Katie stuff and then it was like, okay, now Britney Spears. And I was like, okay, but like, what about me? And then it was like, but now Kesha. And it was just like, but these were huge rooms and these were like big, you know, I was working with Max Martin and Benny Blanco and Circuit and all these huge producers and writers. And I was like, how do I say no to this? And I was starting to get known as a songwriter. And it was like, it was awesome to, to be, you know, respected and have people know my work. But it was also like a little bit of a trap because people started seeing me just as a songwriter. And so when I came in to do the artist thing, it was like, isn't she a songwriter? It's like weird. It's like you really get pigeonholed in this town where it's like people can only see you as one thing. And I've definitely had that happen with people before where I have seen where it's like, oh, like there's this intern that I befriended that works at my publishing company or whatever. And like, he is an intern in my brain. You are an intern. And it's like, oh, by the way, I'm a songwriter. And it's like, no, you're an intern. Like, huh. I like, I can't like take you seriously because I saw you in this role. And then they turn out to be amazing. And I'm like, okay, like this is just, that's how people saw me where it's like, you are this one thing. And that is how I see you. So it took a lot of me like making noise to really convince people that I am an artist and I always was one, you know? Yeah. It's been interesting. Like there's a few and specifically women I know who are songwriters who also have always been artists. And like that, what you're describing is also sentiments maybe that I've heard as well, that it's just like when things are going so well, like I think that that's kind of like a can be such a tricky thing in life is when, especially as artists, when you have something that you're so passionate about and the art that you want to make and put out into the world. And it feels like, why is this not like, when is it my time? When is it the time for this to start working? And something else is working. And when mm-hmm. someone's like, well, don't fight the thing that's working because you also need to eat. You also need a roof over your head. Totally, yeah. and, and the things that you, the things that were working for you aren't necessarily like it did not just stay, you know, extra cuts off of a, you know, Japanese released record. It mm-hmm. was like you were at the, you were Grammy, writing Grammy nominated songs. Like you're, you're going to all the events and all the parties. And, but more importantly, the, the, you were in the room where it happened where people would come together and celebrate those who are like the most successful within the industry of like of artists and and the creators of that art so I can imagine it must be it must have been a very odd time to be kind of getting everything you've ever wanted but not in the way you pictured it happening definitely and I was like I mean I was so grateful because I had been so broke like you said when when you get when I got my first record deal you had a huge record deal and they gave me a lot of money and I didn't know anything. Again, I didn't know how the industry works. So I was like, oh, wow, you just gave me all this money because like, I'm that good. Like, didn't understand that that's the budget to make the album. Like, it's not just money because you're cool. It's money that it's an advance that you have to pay yeah. all of that back. When my money ran out, I was like, uh, okay. I was literally like scrounging for a change in the couch to eat a Taco Bell. Like I was broke and my hot water got turned off and my cell phone got turned off and I didn't have a car. Like I was broke. So it was like a, such a blessing that Katie came into my life and that I was able to work on those albums and, and not only like survive and, you know, have enough money to live, but to make a name for myself and make a mark on pop culture history. Like I am incredibly grateful for that, but it was definitely really hard for me as, you know, a 24, 25 year old girl that really, really wanted to be an artist and really wanted to be seen to stay in the shadows, to stay behind the scenes. That was like incredibly painful for me, but you know, so I, I went out and just did it on my own instead. <laughs> you you've, uh, mentioned that that experience of writing with Katie on her second record 
and what like saved your life, not mm-hmm. only financially, but also gave you something else that w- like was so much more important in your life rather than the like parties and drugs mm-hmm. and alcohol that you would kind that that was like the big shift. You've opened up a lot about your sobriety. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely like, you know, like I said, after I got dropped from the first album, I really spiraled into my alcoholism and my using. I just kept my head down and just worked, 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 but was like, you know, using a lot the entire time. And then when this golden opportunity fell in my lap, I was like, I am getting a second chance. And like, that really does not happen that often in this world. And I don't want to fuck it up. So I, I ended up getting sober and, you know, my, my partner at the time was also struggling. And so I, I learned about 12 step program and, you know, programs for people that love addicts. And, and I I just learned a lot about myself and about, and started hearing myself and people's stories when I was going to these meetings and stuff. So I ended up getting sober and it was like a huge spiritual awakening. And it was like the whole universe opened up for me. And it also helped me a lot with my resentments about feeling unseen, about, you know, existing in the shadows and all these things. And I was really able to tap into gratitude because that's really where I should have been. And like, I'm just incredibly grateful for that. I've just learned a lot and it really changed my life. So yeah, I'm, I'm coming up on 12 years sober now and I'm, it's the best decision I ever made. (laughs) It's, it's, it's interesting. Like I have even a difficult time sometimes being in LA because it is just so people are constantly you you sit down to have a meal with someone and they're usually and I don't want to generalize but I'm sorry it's pretty hard not to generalize sometimes where you (laughs) especially people that are in any of the industries in entertainment in LA they're usually looking at someone else has entered the building or like who else is here well what's Mm -hmm. the next thing well who's Mm -hmm. on the billboard who's that like the your social currency is so much like the most important thing of like what you're worth to other people it can be and it's so interesting it like that that's been an interesting thing that I've had to really reckon with too is like is ego and identity according to how someone else sees me as opposed to how I see myself and I have limited myself so often because I've just decided to accept someone else's version of me as my uh-huh. own yeah and so to be able to you know have the experience where you have success you sit down with your with your ego or the green one-eyed monster whatever you like have different names for it but whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it and be like we're gonna have a reckoning like we're mm-hmm. gonna get to know each other and like I'm gonna take over from here yeah and to be able to say I know my voice and I'm ready to make my own record on my terms mm-hmm. like to do that all within your 20s I think is fucking incredible because <laughs> it usually takes people a lot longer well you know I I got sober when I was 28 so you know I was almost to 30 I didn't it, it's it still certainly your didn't 20s have, didn't happen overnight <laughs> but yeah what what you were saying about you know it's really difficult being a creative having having your livelihood having like the work that you do be reliant upon others' validation. It's like, I can make art for myself and that's great, but I also have to eat. So I have to make something that other people like. And like your whole existence revolves around other people liking you and liking your art. <laughs> Where it's like other jobs you can go in and like do a good job and it doesn't matter if someone likes it or not. It's that it's not subjective. It's like you did the job, you get paid. And now in the creative field, it's really like our whole identities are tied up in success. And that's one of the biggest things that I've, I've had to grapple with. And one of the biggest 
lessons that I learned that I don't think I would have learned if I hadn't gotten sober, which is that, you know, I found myself, even when I was like killing it and I had like five number ones on the radio in one summer, like it was insane. And I was like, I want more. Why am I unhappy? What it's like this never ending void. And I realized that I had made success my higher power, which is like living in a sand castle. Like there, there, you have no control over whether other people like your work. I have no control over that. And even, you know, I've seen plenty of artists over the years, like spend a ton of money or like labels will sink millions of dollars into something and it just doesn't work. Like you can't control it. <laughs> and so yeah. that's a moment of surrender where you have to be like, all I can do is show up for the work and like try to enjoy myself doing it. And because I stopped enjoying it, I was just like, you know, creating under the gun. And I think it's just important to enjoy what you do and like stay out of the results. And like, I feel like if you enjoyed the process, then it is success. Then you got to spend your life doing something that you love, you know, and, and not always chasing the next number one, always chasing the next thing. It's just exhausting and it's totally out of your control. <laughs> Did it feel liberating to write for yourself again? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And especially, you know, so I got a second record deal. I signed with Epic and I put out American Girl and I was simultaneously recording my album and the Prism album with Katie. And it, so I was like, it was double duty and it was a lot and it was really hard to split my attention. But obviously like, you know, that album was extremely important and I love working with Katie and the whole dream team that we had put together. It was hard to do both, but it was such a nice time <laughs> because I had a label that was like paying for the studio and I had a nice studio to go to. And I had, you know, when I picked up the phone to work with someone, they answered and I was like, oh, I'm just so happy to be here. <laughs> like where people just want to work with me because I, I, my whole plan was to like be a songwriter, right? So that I can be an artist so that I can legitimize myself and then I can get in the rooms. And I'm not just this, like this tarnished artist that was once dropped you know, because in my head, I was like, oh, God, I'm, I'm useless because I was dropped and like no one wants to work with me. And blah, blah, blah. it didn't work the first time. So it's never going to work. But now that I've written these songs for other people, now everyone takes me seriously. And now I can get in the rooms and, you know, make the album I want to make. And so I made a whole album. I put out American Girl. It did pretty well, but, you know, wasn't, you know, I was, I was competing with Roar on the radio. <laughs> I was competing with myself, which was strange. But then when it came to putting out the second single, the label was like, yeah, great. It's, it sounds great. We'll do that. And then I, I went on tour. I fronted the money for the tour. And then halfway through the tour, the label called and was like, we actually don't think the second single is a hit. So we're pulling out. And I was like, okay, but like, I'm already on tour. I'm already promoting this. And I already paid for it out of pocket. And they were like, yeah, I don't know. And so I was like, okay, I'm out of here. So I, I left the label. I was not dropped. I left because I was like, I've already done this. I don't want to do this again. I don't want to be held hostage again. And so I left and I, but they owned the masters and there was yeah, nothing I could do. So I just, I wrote Bombastic and Bombastic was my first independent release. And that was kind of my like, fuck you to the industry where I was just like, I know none of y'all believe me, none of y'all see what's happening, but I'm about to come. I'm bringing bombastic. And I ended up getting a bunch of sinks. And that's when I really learned about like the power of owning your masters mm. and like, and also sync money was really, I was like, oh my God, like this is, 
I know how to write for sync, which is like a specific way to write a song, which is like broad enough that anyone can relate to it. And like having non-lyrical hooks, like, uh, 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 (laughs) like that works for every movie trailer, you know? And I was like, okay, I know how to do this. And so I ended up getting like 25 syncs on this little EP and I still get them. (laughs) So I was like, okay, like it was like, yeah, Phoenix rising from the ashes again. (laughs) This was my second, like, had it all, lost it all, got it all, lost it all again. And so, you know, at this point, I'm just like, it's a roller coaster. And I, I, I never will feel like, oh, it's over for me because there's always a new chapter. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yes, there really is always a new chapter. It is also crazy, like, how quickly the industry changed in that period of time. Because where you started, I mean, Apple Music wasn't even around. You know what I mean? This is, like, when people were also... I just remember being asked by, like, a bunch of, like, suits, like, well, what are your MySpace plays like? And being (laughs) like, I don't... You're on MySpace? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) You know, like, it was just so confusing to me. Like, this... Like, to go from... 
like big label deals. You had to be like a teenager. You had to be like, look a certain way, be a certain way, be pitched maybe for reality. Remember when everyone had a fucking reality show? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, a little over 10 years later, and it is like, no, you can make a record, own it independently, record it on your own terms, put it out and be able to control the financial distribution of it as well. Like, Mm -hmm. that blows my mind because it all went so differently. Before I forget these two questions that popped in my mind as you were talking, do you distinctly remember a difference between like your first label experience and like, you know, and even the second and being an independent artist? Like just because all I, I got out of it. Like I did not have a good experience. I never went back. I just decided, you know what? I am tired of being told by men that like, I'm so great that they need me there in the room, like they they have to have me only to be told, actually, you're not that great. And why are you even here? Like, I just couldn't (laughs) be told by men anymore. You're so talented. I I changed my mind. Actually, you're pretty shit. Like, Uh, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to not be talented. and I'm just going to (laughs) be shitty. And I'm just going to remove myself from the (laughs) equation. That's for me to work out with my therapist in time. (laughs) But like hearing you talk about this experience, like, did you, was there a shift later on? Were there more women? Was it more encouraging? Like, have you noticed even in the independent, like, does it feel different now? Not really. Okay. I mean, I think that, I think that, okay, here's the thing. In my first deal, and I see people still doing this and I think it's really fucked up. <laughs> like I was 16, 17 years old. I have all of these grown ups because I was a child, all of these mm-hmm. grown ups telling me I'm a genius, telling me that I'm a prodigy, telling me that oh, you're not even going to be able to walk down the street. Like you're going to be mobbed. You're going to be on TRL. You're going to da, 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 just blowing smoke up my ass. And I believed it because why wouldn't I, you know, why would, why would they lie? And then when that didn't happen, it's like such a huge letdown. And it's kind of like finding out the Santa Claus isn't real, you know? And then when I got, had my second deal, I was obviously way more experienced and like had already had a bunch of hits and like been in the room when big shit happened. Like I understood how it all worked. And like, I remember I went, <laughs> God. I went to the label in New York. American Girl has a lyric about Slurpees. I had not met anyone at the label. I had met Ellie Reed, who signed me originally, and like maybe one other person. But like, I live in LA. It was all in New York. So I went out to New York to like meet the label or whatever. And I walked into a boardroom and the entire staff was applauding and everyone had Slurpees. And I remember being like, this is bullshit. This is bullshit. This is like, like, I'm not a little kid. Like, I know that none of you really actually give a shit about me. You, none of you know me. None of you don't know who I am. Maybe you heard the song. But like, it had just come out. It was just kind of starting. It's not like I had like a long relationship with this label and that everyone was just so happy to see me. I was like, this is so disingenuous. Like, yuck. I just really didn't like, even though it was, supposed, it was just like a nice gesture, but I was like, I don't like this. And, and you so, could see through it. Yeah, yeah. You could see right through it. Yeah. And I, and I see uh, labels doing that to young artists too, where like, you know, when they get like an A&R will come and be like, oh, well, I mean, she's a genius when she's playing Madison Square Garden, da, da, da. And, and then behind their back, they're like, this, this project is going nowhere. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, what? Why do you do that to people? It's terrible. Yeah. It's just like lying to, it's like cheating or something with a spout like it's just it's gross so I think that my experience changed because I could see through it but I still see a lot of that same kind of psychological bullshit I do see more women now and also obviously since me too people have to be a lot more careful there I mean mm-hmm. god when me too happened it was like have you seen that movie Pleasantville yeah where it was like everything 
everything's in, in black the black and white. And white. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then like something happens and they start seeing color. Like mm-hmm. that was what the Me Too movement was like for me, where I was like, I had been living in the world in the patriarchy and just accepted that that was how the world was and didn't think it would ever change. And then when people started speaking, I was like, <gasps> and then I was looking at my life and looking at all of the experiences that I'd had and like, so many interactions, like the majority of my interactions in professional music industry situations fit into me too. You know what I mean? Of just like inappropriate objectification, overstepping, abusive, like, and I was like, oh my God, like I'm part of the problem because like, I was just like, yeah, that's just how, you know, I remember like walking into a room and having a big executive be like, give us a spin. And then I'd be like, okay. And I would like do a little spin. Like, ugh, it's just so gross. So it has changed in that way. I I was eight. I think I'd turned 18. So that's why they were like, well, it's legal. Yeah. yeah. But it was a manager of mine and like the head of the record, the label that I was on, debating of like sending me down a carpet with like, I don't know how old he is. He's like a very big rock star who was very pop, who like, it would have been, a th- but like, you know, just to get me photographed on a carpet and he was in his like, maybe he was 40 at this point, definitely mm-hmm. late thirties, but like trying to be like, yeah, just go. Like, and then but a manager being like, no, she's not doing, I'm, I'm just being like, oh, there's these grown men arguing of like who, where to place me on another man for uh-huh. photographs. Yeah. And, and like, or and just feeling like even just remembering things in a different, like just being like the like the, the head fuck of like I remember having to like sing like I was doing there was some meeting where they were like hey can you just sing this thing real quick and so I sang it and my a and I just remember my a and I felt so much shame and my a and r in the middle of it an older man who <laughs> a lot of problematic things but at that point he, he just I sang and then he went she can sing who knew oh. and I just remember feeling. Like, I was so young and just feeling, like, so ashamed. Like, wait, do I not? Am I not good? Like, yeah, why like, am I here Isn't that why then? I'm here? Yeah. Isn't that why I'm here? Then what the fuck am I doing here? Like, <sighs> what am I doing here? And it just, it, it was just such a, it, like, such a mind fuck on, it, it, and what my issue is, especially with young women, is it's like, we're already told by the patriarchy that we're too loud or to like, are you sure that's your opinion? It might not be the right one. Like mm-hmm. we've already been mansplained about the world enough, especially at that age, yeah. you know, where it's like girls don't like girls are good girls and you, you know, you're just quiet and you have to be polite. But then when you are bold enough to even engage in like creating your own art and being told that like, mm, I don't know, I don't know if this is like what the world, like we have to have an opinion about it. Mm-hmm. Like as a group full of men, I just like, it just makes me so sad because it just, it ruins it. It like, it diminishes this beautiful, beautiful thing that we should all as humans be like, in, like encouraged to like storytell and create art mm-hmm. in the world. Like that's what keeps us all going. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's really bizarre. It's really bizarre. I remember like there was a, this is like kind of the opposite of of that, but I was like, in my head, I wanted to be Madonna. But then what I wrote was like Fiona Apple. Like I, I, there was a big disconnect between like who I was like persona wise and who I wanted to be as a performer. And then like the music that actually came out of me, which is where I really should have been put in with the right producers and songwriters to be like, oh, okay, you want to sound like Madonna or whatever, then 
work with this person. And so they really wanted me to be girl behind the piano. And I wanted to dance and I wanted to perform. And I was like miserable being in like adult contemporary land at 17. I was like, I'm so bored. Like this isn't what I want to be. And so I remember I played some showcase that was like not very big. And I was going to wear a little denim miniskirt because like denim miniskirts were like what we all lived in in the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. And Ugg boots, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like, okay, so I'm going to wear this skirt. And there was a whole argument between the CEO of Warner Brothers and my big time manager about how where I was like, yeah. And they were like, you're sitting on a stool. Like they're going to be able to see up your skirt. And I was like, whatever, like I'm a rock star. It's fine. And they were like, absolutely not. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. You, I can't wear what I want to wear now. I can't wear a skirt. It's like a showcase. It's not a huge, crazy thing. And so I was like, fuck you. I wore the skirt. And then there was a whole meeting about my manager. I remember said, I've never been so humiliated in my life. Mind you, this manager had worked with like big metal bands in the 80s all kinds of debauchery. And I'm like, oh, my panty shot was the most humiliated you've ever been. <laughs> Holy shit. Like, I just remember being like, oh God. And just like, kind of like slut shamed in a way where I was like, I'm just trying to be myself. Like what, you know, but they had this idea of what they wanted me to be, which was like, you know, like legitimate singer songwriter, which means that I'm not allowed to be sexy. I'm not allowed to be myself. So it was like, and I remember being like, don't you guys want to like objectify me? I don't understand. Like, isn't that like what I've heard about the music industry is that everyone wants like a sexy little pop tart and they weren't having it. And I was very, I was miffed about it. <laughs> I was like, and, yeah, and God forbid if you were being that. they would have been like, oh, look how homely she is. You yeah. got to put it out there. We're <laughs> containing it. I couldn't win. I also got in a big fight <laughs> when I was like 28, by the way, with Epic about, <laughs> about wearing cat eyeliner. They're like, you need to lose the cat eyeliner. And I was like, what? what? And they're like, we're going to send someone over to like teach you how to do makeup. I'm like, I'm literally a grown ass woman. Are you kidding me? And then they're like, we're going to send you someone to teach you how to, how to pose for pictures. I was like, I've already been doing this for like 12 years. Like, but I was, and so someone like came over and we stood in front of a mirror and I was like, this is so humiliating. And I just remember like bursting into tears and like trying to do my makeup and being like, I'm not allowed to do the kata. And just like all of the little bullshit. I'm like, nobody cares. Is that going to make or break me if I have cat eyeliner? No. Anyway, so I think that a lot of but that should have changed. Make, they want to make it think that they do because then they own you and then yes. you think that you're a product of their creation. Everybody which wants to have a say bullshit. because everyone's scared yes. of losing their jobs because it's like a revolving door of people. Nobody ever stays at those labels for long. You get yeah. signed somewhere that you have a champion and then your champion's like, bye, I'm going to another label or like, I'm over this. I'm going to get into real estate. And you're like, what? Like, this is my whole dream. And now I don't have anyone at the label that gives a shit what I'm doing. So, I mean, that's really common. But yeah. anyway, yeah, but, yeah, you're right. Everyone wants to ha have their fingerprints on you so they feel like they own a piece of you. Yes, until you, like, thank goodness we're at a time where people can be their own independent artist and, like, yes. put things out on their own. When you were, like, you, are, like, I know that you, jumping forward a little bit, that you've re-recorded so many of your, like, you know, we now call it uh, Taylor's version. You've made Bonnie's <laughs> yeah. version of the uh -huh. songs that the label like kept the masters too. Mm -hmm. Why was it important to you and for you to do that? Well, what had happened was when I went on that tour that I told you about, I played all of these songs. First of all, like I said, I was so happy when I made this album. I was like, finally, 
I'm making music that I love for me. And I'm like in my songwriting prime. This is like, you know, I was just wrote Teenage Dream, just finished Roar. Like, you know, I was like in it working with some of the best people in the world. And I wrote these songs that I was so, so proud of. And I feel like I finally uh, fixed that, that kind of uh, cognitive dissonance between like who I am as a person and what my music sounds like. Like I finally made it work. And I went on this tour and all of these fans heard it. And then I left the label and everyone was like, well, where, when are those songs coming out? And I recently found a forum online that's like 500 pages long and like 10 years old of these fans discussing the unreleased album. <laughs> and like they had found leaked demos, they had bootleg live performances, they dissected the lyrics, they knew everyone that wrote on it, like all of this. And I was like, well, if you care that much about it, and it made me so happy because I was so heartbroken to lose the songs where I was like, I love these so much, but they'll never come out. And also at the time, it was kind of like the tail end of, of the sparkly 2000, 2010s pop era where everyone was kind of like, things got oversaturated. Everything started to sound the same. And then the, the culture shifts. And so then it was like, everything sounded like Drake. And then we have Lord, and then we have Billie Eilish. And it's like, people rebel against what's like overly popular, right? Mm -hmm. Same thing in like the 80s where it was like, oh, like over the top hair metal stuff. And then Nirvana comes along and everything's and all those people are done, you know, so I was like, oh, OK, well, that era is over. So I guess I need to shift my thinking anyway. I didn't know then that like really pop culture goes in cycles of like five years until something gets totally oversaturated. And then somebody a Nirvana has to come along and shake things up. But it always comes back. And it also has to do with the economy. You know, when things are not going well in the economy, people don't want to listen to sad, quiet songs. They want to escape. And so pop music has come back in a major way. And I think it's still going to continue to grow. So it was kind of just perfect timing where I was like, hmm. I was seeing all of these TikToks about people being like, bring back 2010s pop music. Like, we miss the party. Like, and I was like, well, I had this whole beautiful album that never saw the light of day and the fans want it. So like, fuck it. I'm just going to do it. And at first I reached out to the label and was like, hey, like, what do you think? Do you think we could, uh, I could, it's been so long. No one's paying attention. Like, can I just get these back? And they were like, no. You just give it to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it was like months of like me, like not wanting to pay for a lawyer for it. Because I was like, I don't know if this is going to be worth it or not. Just like emails and old legal records and old master, like trying to find, you know. And then I finally was like, you know what? It's just easier to re-record them. <laughs> so that's what I did. <laughs> Did it feel really special to revisit those lyrics and that time in your life yeah, 10 years later? It was, it was definitely really interesting and a walk down memory lane and being like, okay, some of this I think could be punched up and be better and I can change some lyrics. I mean, like, why did I do that? And then I get into the lyric and I'm like, oh, I see. I see what, because that rhymes with that and that's okay. And then I already went down this path and that didn't work. Okay, well, then this is the best version of it, you know? <laughs> but like I went through with a, tine, a fine tooth comb every single song and was like, did I make the right decision or was this a rush thing? And like almost every time I was like, yeah, I did that for a reason. It's just funny to like revisit. I don't know if you've ever like written something and just like never listened to it again. And then you hear it like, a few years later and you're like, huh, I wrote this. And then you listen to it and you're like, oh, it's like listening to someone else because you don't even remember what you did. Have you ever had that experience? I've had that. Like, I, I mean, I haven't, I've really just like shut down my, I, I've you know, like, I, I, anytime anything with music is like talked about, I'm like, that was a different life for me. 
but even though I love it so much, I, I do that with like, I, I don't know. I've had such a complicated relationship with it. You know, like I truly like my trajectory was instead of going to like the next label or finding myself in writer's rooms, I got like my kind of like kept me going. And my like second chance came in the form of my producer at the time called me up and was like, do you need a job? And I literally was like, yeah, like I didn't, I too did not finish high school. Technically I graduated through correspondence, but like, oh really? And I had no work as like a waitress. I had no waitressing work, which in LA you need like minimum like three years experience. It was very hard to find a waitressing job in LA. And so my producer that I'd worked with was, I got a job as a music director when Miley Cyrus did the Best of Both Worlds tour. And oh, wow. so That's he huge. called me up and was like, do you need a job? And I was like, yeah. And so I, I was her backup singer. Amazing. For a year, a, a, like about a year until I got let go from that because I'm not a great backup singer, but but <laughs> learned a lot. <laughs> and also like, got, like for me, that was the perspective of like, oh, this is like... Like, that's what she does, even at the age of, like, 14. And I don't, like, I can't do that. Like, uh. my, you know, I, I just kind of slowly realized, I don't know if this is what I'm meant to do mm-hmm. with my life. So I, I think that maybe eventually I'll find my way back to a form of it, but it would have to be for me because I think I believed the narrative of too many men for mm-hmm. so long. And any time I kind of tiptoed back into it, I'd quickly kind of get like shut down that it's not my thing mm-hmm. you know it's not really my thing you know like I'm not that serious you know did I ever I don't really play an instrument I don't really write you know it just it, I think I it would be a very interesting world to kind of tip tap tip toe back into at some point mm-hmm. I mean it's definitely it's definitely a labor of love and it, it's labor and it's free labor for the most part so it's like if you gotta love it if you don't love it and if like it's not calling to you, then like don't, yeah, don't bother <laughs> because it's yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> y- you got to really love it. If you don't love it, then you're going to be miserable, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I haven't had that with music, but I have written like, like I'll, I'll uh, kind of get in the zone or like the sleepy time or I'll just have to like write my big feelings out, type it out on my computer and then just kind of save it or in all, or I'll just like minimize the screen and it'll come up when I open my computer and mm-hmm. from like, a couple months ago and I'll be like, oh, that's an interesting worded sentence. Like, yes. okay, that's not yeah. so terrible. I know like how to, to put write. words together. I like right. to write. Yeah. You like to write. You just don't like the music industry. <laughs> I just don't like the music industry. Yeah. And yes, and I think I'm still like learning how to listen to my own voice first mm-hmm. and not like just everyone in the room. But yeah. but for you, is it so lovely? This is a, also, I think, a really special yummy time for the world to be going out, being social, going to concerts again. Like like what you said, like pop music, like needing that like amazing like pop energy because this has been a really rough couple of years and is still a rough time, I think, mm-hmm. just in, like is in humanity. Mm-hmm. And to have that like escapism is so wonderful. And so even just seeing like your music videos and like you like back performing, like for you creating this really special, vibrant world, mm-hmm. what has that been like? And and being at the forefront of it. It's so satisfying. And you know, it's funny, like I, like I said, like a big reason why I got into wanting to be a musician was because I wanted to make music videos. Like I remember watching like the the thriller music video and being like, 
I want to do that. Like, I want to make these little mini movies where I get to sing and dance and perform and like tell a story. So for me, like, because when we were growing up, like TRL was everything. Like, oh, everything. Everything. Like MTV ran the music industry and the radio, obviously. But, you know, that's how you were introduced to artists. And now I feel like there, you know, there are so many options out there. And it's amazing that it's been democratized. But it's really like we're not all having the same experience the way that we used to, where everyone, mm-hmm. I think they call it like monoculture or something, where it's like everyone is having the same experience because we're all listening to the same radio station. We're watching the same TV show. We're watching, you know, and now it's like, everyone's attentions are split into these little niche communities, which is really cool because it gives everyone else a chance (laughs) where it used to be like, there are 20 artists on, on the chart. And those are the only people that you're going to know. And so everybody knows every word to every song and it's just not that way anymore. But what was I going to say? Oh yeah. So I getting into the music video stuff, like I started directing. I also wrote and directed a short film during the pandemic And that was like a really fun experience for me. I ended up winning a bunch of awards in the festival circuit, which was totally unexpected. But like, I really am interested in in directing and in fusing music and picture. Like, that's really what excites me. It's like the, the combination of the two. I think that's why I felt so unsatisfied being behind the scenes was because I had no say in the visual that would accompany whatever I was writing. And I'm such a visual artist. But the thing is like, music videos don't make any money. Like it's fully just just a vanity project. And so for me, I'm like, this is just the art that I love to make. And I'm like spending all my own money doing it. And I'm like, whatever, I get to look at my archive. I get to look at my repertoire and be like, look at all this cool shit I made. So it's like, I don't really expect to get anything back from these music videos. And like, people are like, why are you wasting your money on this? And I'm like, because it makes me happy. And that's my idea of success is doing what I love. So, and also I'm like, you know, I'm not like age is just a number, whatever. But I'm like, I got to do it now. I got to do it now. And I don't I don't want to wake up and be 50 and be like, damn, I wish I'd done that. I wish I had made that music video. So I'm just doing it. It's really just kind of for me and for the fans to give a shit. But like I have a very small but mighty fan base. But like I don't expect these music videos to like do anything for me necessarily. Other than I just get to look back and be proud of what I did and enjoy the Which- process is it like it, it, that's the stuff you know mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. like how many like how often do people get to say that you know that that's a beautiful and that's a bold thing not everyone has the guts to be able to put themselves and put their time and their energy and their vulnerability and their creation out into the world and be like you know what it's really because I just want like I had to I had to make it and I had to see it and I have to know it exists mm-hmm. and like I get I feel fulfilled from that feeling yeah it feels and I'm like proud it's complete like when I can put put a visual with a song, then it feels like it's complete. Yeah. And when I don't get to do that, then I'm like, it's not a full piece of art for me yet. You know? <laughs> what would, and this is probably such a cheese ball question, but I fucking love cheese ball questions. Um, what <laughs> would today's Bonnie say to 16-year-old Bonnie on her first day in LA? I would probably encourage her to collaborate more. <laughs> Because once I started collaborating, I love collaborating. Once I started collaborating, like a whole new world opened up for me. I learned so much. I was just very egocentric, I think, because everyone had just told me I was a genius. And so I was like, I don't need anybody. But like, I think I I would have like started building a community earlier and had people to collaborate with and learn from. Because I didn't start learning until I started writing with other people. And that wasn't until I was like, you know, 23, 24. So I had like, 
you know, many years of just sort of floundering and being like, who am I? How do I do this? And it's, I think it's really important to have a community. And I think I also would have told her to stop drinking a lot sooner. But you know what? All of, all of my horrible nightmare experiences with drinking and drugs, I think made me, I know, made me who I am. And it's important that I had those experiences. And I'm just one of those people that had to learn the hard way. But I'm glad I did. I know this is a very random question, but I also, <laughs> it, every time I hear the song now, it's all I can think about. But did you watch the WeWork? Did you see any of the WeWork stuff? You know what I'm yes. talking about? Yeah. Did you die knowing that like the song you would wake up to every day was Katy Perry and your song yeah. Roar? It was amazing. Like, <laughs> you, like, did you hear this? And like the, did you know this before like everyone started like putting out the documentary and like the, the, the series that then was streamed after? No, I did not know that, but it's, it's amazing to hear. No, I, I love that. I love knowing that like I get, I get to be a piece of somebody's life. And yeah, I, I also love that. I don't know. I guess an ongoing theme in my music and continuing into the single I just put out is just like, is empowerment is like, fuck the haters. You can do it. Like, I just, I really love uplifting, empowering, kind of inspirational, aspirational. It's yeah. kind of my cup of tea. That's kind of my specialty. I think because I have struggled <laughs> for so long and I kind of write it for myself where I'm like, I need a song to pump me up. Like that was really what bombastic was where I was like, fuck these people. Like, I'm going to make it work. And, and Roar was the same way. Like I was really going through some shit when, when Katie and I wrote Roar, we both were. And so it was really like kind of a battle cry. The songs are important. I don't know. You know, I see like videos online of people that like, you know, are, are fighting cancer or are, you know, training to go to the Olympics or whatever it is. Like I, I love a success. I love an underdog story. I love to see an underdog win. <laughs> I remember I was, I was on an airplane years ago and I was watching karate kid. <laughs> and at the end he like does the kick and then it's like a freeze frame and he wins and he's like, ah, Mr. Miyagi. And I'm like sobbing on the plane. <laughs> like I love an underdog story and like seeing people win and seeing people get over adversity like that, that is really like what it's all about. And I think that that's really what I've become to a lot of my fans too. And that's part of why I kept going. Cause I was like, look, I could just go direct. I could just go do other stuff. I could just throw in the towel. But like, I have all these people that are like, you are such a good example of just perseverance. And so I'm like, okay, I'll be the poster child for that. Like I get knocked down, I get back up. If I'm here to just demonstrate that that's an option for people, then like, cool. Even if I keep getting knocked down, like what am I gonna do? I can't quit even if get I tried to quit. Up. I tried get to quit. Up. Yeah. <laughs> I really was like, I was like, God, please remove this, like this, yeah. this yearning for success, for stardom, for whatever it is. And I, I tried to not be an artist for a while where I was like, okay, that chapter is over and I need to move on. And I was so depressed. I was like, I just got to do what makes me happy. I just got to do it. If not for me, for someone else. Yeah, exactly. Because I'm glad because it makes so many other people happy. So truly, I'm glad that you have not quit. And I know and I like I know that I've been talking your ear off. But I do think it's like such a magical like in, in in reading other interviews that you have participated in to sit down with you today. I I just love when like 
when other female artists like run up to another female artist and like like my new thing right now at this point I'm like I just I think we all need to lean into being fans like this whole like I'm too cool club I'm like can we are we done with that are we done with that because let's all just like love each other and lean into something there's no like guilty pleasure like just for <laughs> like love something because you fucking love it yeah. but I loved reading about Lana Del Rey ran up to you at mm. one point and was just like that she had been listening to you and was like you need to make music like where's your music like mm-hmm. what's happening and she became this like little angel that popped up and this little like you know god or universe this little spiritual wink being like you it don't really get to was. quit it yeah. really was like I, I was like at a weird low point where I didn't know what I was going to do it was like after I had been like I don't I shouldn't be an artist I need to just like stop trying and then she I just like ran into her <laughs> and she was like oh my gosh like you're Bonnie McKee and I was like you're Alana Del Rey like I was like I can't <laughs> believe you know who I am and then she like showed me on her phone that she had just been listening to Bombastic like on her way there and I was like what and then she was like let me call you and I was like okay and then she called me and like gave me a pep talk for like two hours I was like wow I really needed that and like that was kind of like the springboard I just you know what I've just I feel like I've spent my whole life waiting for permission to be an artist because you know after the first thing didn't work out it was like okay you've been humbled sit down shut up write songs for other people that's that And so I've spent the past, you know, 12 years or whatever being like, now can I be an artist? Now can I do, you know? And like, I don't know, there was just something about, I mean, no, I shouldn't have to ask anybody else, but there's something about like having someone that I really admired and looked up to sort of giving me permission to like set me on a path. So thank you, Lana. (laughs) Thank you, Lana. Sometimes we all need a wake up call from Lana Del Rey, you know? Right. <laughs> oh, well, Bonnie, I could chat your ear off forever, truly, but I know I'm like taking up a lot of your time. So I will just, I like to close out all my big conversations with a little conversation cool down, just like a final five questions that like the first thing that pops into your mind. Okay. Uh-oh. <laughs> so before we leave you, Bonnie, could you please tell us something that you like? Something that I like? Just something that you like. Just anything? Anything that you like. Caviar. Okay. Do have you always like caviar or have you been like into it? Because I feel like caviar is having a moment. I really, is it? I feel like it is. Oh my gosh. I've, uh, since suddenly, I was a little like kid, every, <laughs> since I was a little kid, I've always loved caviar. And my mom was like, oh boy, we got, love- we got one with expensive taste. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. What's something that you know? I know that, uh, I don't know. I don't know anything. I don't know anything. I know that I don't know anything. What's something that you hate? I hate when people are mean to each other on the internet. I, I hate when people are just hateful. I hate hate. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. hate it. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I mean, I won't even get into it, but like, yep, yep. Yeah. Jesus, yeah. I just can't. We all just love each other. I don't know. Speaking of that, what is something that you love? That's not friends, family, partners, but something that you love for you. I love being alone. I love like a solo trip. I love traveling alone. I love silence. I love to just, like, I don't meditate. I just will stare at the wall. I just am like a daydreamer. I love like, I'm I'm an empath. So I'm like very much affected by people's energies around me. And so I love quality time with myself. I love a 
a quiet bubble bath. I really love that. And last but not least, what is a quirky little fact about you? I am a craft queen. You give me, like, I'm kind of MacGyver a little bit. You can give me, like, a safety pin and some Halloween spider webs and some Christmas tree ornaments, and I'll make I'll make it into a bubble bath costume like I just did. <laughs> oh, that's funny. It's, I was, I was, my Halloween costume this year was just being fresh out of a bathtub. <laughs> I just realized that was the last thing I said was that I love baths. That's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well... I love speaking with you. Thank you so much, Bonnie. It's so lovely to meet you. It has been truly like, I've just been just even reading your interviews and like looking, like watching and reading through your career and listening through your career, your musical career has just been a joy in preparing to sit down with you. So truly, thank you for making your art. Yeah, you don't get to give up. You just don't. And we'll make sure Lana Del Rey, if you ever, you know, are stressed again, Lana, get on the phone. Call Bonnie. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. These are great questions. I feel like I'm I'm really talking to someone that's been through the same things I have. So it's it's really refreshing. Thank you. A Super Bloom podcast is hosted by me, Candace King, produced by Melissa DeMonts and Diamond Imprint Productions, edited by Diane Kang, post-production sound by Coco Lawrence, and advertising partnership with ACAST.